journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavua Tov. Welcome, welcome everybody. I'm Adel Kozulski and I'm excited to be with you for the next three quarters of an hour. Monday holds a very, very special place in my heart that I can sit for 45 minutes, stop what I'm doing and learn a little bit of Torah. And I hope you enjoy that too. And uh, I want you and uh, encourage you to join the discussion. If you ever have any questions or you want to make any comments on what we're speaking about Please don't be shy. The SMS number is 34519. Our uh, WhatsApp number is, well, it's actually not a WhatsApp. It's a Telegram number, 061-895-1019. And as we do on Mondays, we are traversing the Bible. We are in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 28. We are reading and learning about our forefather, Jacob, um, he's told by his parents to leave because his brother Esau is searching him out, wanting to kill him. And he starts making his way out of the country. But before he does that, he encounters um, angels, angels that are leaving, that are, were protecting him in the land of Israel, that are going to be bringing him down. But it is also a, a whole prophetic vision that we spoke about last week that uh, Yaakov is given the promise of Yitzhak and, more importantly, his grandfather, Abraham, that he will be a, a beneficiary of the blessings given to Abraham and that us Jews will be here forever and ever until the arrival of Mashiach. It should happen very, very speedily in our days, uh, the dawning of the redemption and the arrival, so to speak, at the year-end party. It's been 5,781 years. Not a long time in God's eyes, maybe millennia in ours, but uh, we have we are living proof of the existence um, and fulfillment more of the blessings that Jacob received um, from his fa- his forefathers uh, Abraham and Yitzhak, and from God Himself. That uh, even though we'll be spread to every corner of the world, God will be with us and he will return us back to our land. Interestingly, just in terms of uh, time, we know that yesterday we celebrated Yom Yerushalayim, the day that Jerusalem became um, our, the capital of Israel once again after 2,000 years of exile. We're living in momentous times. You know, we kind of like take so much for granted but when one just takes a step back and one becomes contemplative and one starts just understanding things in the context of history, we see that we actually are living in momentous times. And who would ever have thought that after 2,000 years of exile and wandering from country to country, being thrown out from expulsions and, and, and uh, pogroms and holocausts, that the Jews would be back in Jerusalem with Jerusalem their capital? We're not complete, though. We're not complete. Um, having Jerusalem is part of the cake. It's part of the pie. We want the full pie, and that is the rebuilding of our temple. On Temple Mount, um, the place where Jacob goes to sleep and has this prophetic dream. And um, we're waiting for that time. And with everything that is going on, 
and uh, the circumstances that we are surrounded with, undoubtedly, we are living in the messianic process. We're kind of like a woman who's giving birth. There are various stages to the birth. Um, but right now, we should all pray that we're at the crowning where the baby's ready to come out and we need to birth this new world where there will be peace, there'll be harmony, there'll be happiness, there'll be brotherhood, there'll be health, there'll be wealth. And it's not only for the Jewish people, but in um, really for the entire world, for the entire world. Abraham was a forefather to the entire world. And so we go back zooming into the book of Genesis, chapter 28. We left off at, I think, if I'm checking over here, verse 15, where we went into the explanations of how Jacob saw visions of the various exiles, that he got very nervous when he saw the fourth exile, that was the angel of Edom, which is now the Western world, the civilized world, climbing and climbing and climbing, and he got terrified and he said to God, I'm not seeing this angel come down. But there God gave him the, the, the promise too, that that angel too would fall, but the Jewish people who climbed along will remain on top. So, if you've missed any of that, you know now that High FM um, is actually on Spotify. You can look for the 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 podcasts there, or you can go back to the website and you can pick up anything that you have missed under my slot. But we're moving forward now. We're going to look at verse 16, which is uh, Pasuk Tesavav, and we're at the point that after. Um, he has seen the angels coming up and down and God giving him the promises that he promised. He wakes up from his sleep. And he says, God is truly in this place. And I did not know. Okay? He said, if I had known... I actually would not have gone to sleep in such a holy place. He wakes up awestruck. He wakes up thunderstruck that my word, what a holy place it is um, that I found myself. Now, if you recall, we said he didn't really just go to sleep because he was exhausted. He went to sleep in order to receive prophecy. But nevertheless, um, it gives him a huge jolting. And what does he say? Vayira, he becomes frightened by the awesomeness of the place. Vayira, Vayomar, and he says, hamakom hazeh. How, how, um, fearsome, how awesome is this place. Ein ki im beit elokim. There is no doubt this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now, at first, Yaakov assumed that he was still on Mount Moriah, where he and his father often went to 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 pray. But and and also just because he had been there so many times, you know, the surroundings he knew, he knew them, and they made him feel very calm when he was there. Now he was in a place that made him unbelievably terrified, and he realized now he was in unfamiliar territory. This wasn't a place on Mount Moriah that he had been there before. And that's why he goes, how, 
how terrifying, how fearsome is this place, for it is none other than the place of, 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 uh, of God's house and the gate of heaven. Now, there's a very interesting um, idea over here. In fact, a few interesting ideas that I want to share with you. Um, and they actually are, are very, very important ones because we know that in Torah, when we look at at the verses, first of all, we need to look at the verses um, from the Hebrew context because the Hebrew context will tell us much more about what it is that we're reading. There's a lot of hinting in it. And then also it's succinct, the Torah. It's very precise, but in it there is a lot of allusion um, to a lot of stuff that we need to learn. So I'm super excited to share that stuff with you. We're going to go for a bit of a break, but before we do... Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is Rebetzin Adel Kozulski, and we are transversing the verses of the Bible, and we just read verse 17 of chapter 28 of Genesis, and there's a lot that we can learn from here. Now, here's something that nobody really wants to hear, that most of us are very guilty of, but something that we should take to heart and, um, you know, be far more cognizant. And that is, is that Jacob Yaakov's um, reaction to sleeping um, on holy ground made him terrified. Okay? He goes... For sure God is found in this place and I didn't even know and, I, and therefore he became frightened. So the rabbis look at this and, and, and tell us the following and listen up because as I said, we're all guilty. It says this teaches, this comes to teach us how careful one must be, number one, not to sleep in the synagogue or in any other place of worship or study. Why? Because these places, the shul, the Beit Medrash, are considered holy places, and one must have respect for it as one would have a royal palace. And uh, we can obviously move that forward and say, would anybody have the audacity to sleep uh, in the king's chambers? It doesn't matter how tired you are or how sleepy you feel, you would not fall in fall asleep in front of the king, out of awe from the king. And so much more so then um, how much it's true when we're in a house of God, okay? When we come to a shul, when we come to a place where we know that we are in the presence of God, we need to be very, very careful. So the first thing is, and even though there's a myriad of jokes about the congregant who falls asleep every time that uh, the rabbi wakes up, the bottom line is is that one should not fall asleep. It is shown, it's, it's said to be very, very disrespectful. But even more than that, if we can go and say, well, that's not me, I'm okay, I don't fall asleep in shul. But one of the things that we do in shul is that we speak unnecessarily. And that too is frowned upon. It says that one who does so has no portion in the God of Israel since he clearly shows he has no respect for the presence of God in the synagogue and that there are actually angels watching over us 
and shaking their heads and saying, woe to this man who spoke in this place. Well, that makes us uh, pretty guilty. And it's something that we need to refrain from. Just as much as that Yaakov had the sensitivity to realize that he was in a holy place, that God's presence was there, shul is not a time to socialize and shul is not a time to catch your morning nap. Shul is a time where we go in to have communication with us and the Almighty, where we connect with our soul, where we can have private time to connect, and it, it should be treated that way. And so one needs to be, be far more aware. Certainly, I'm not going to go down the lane that not only are we talking or we sleeping, but we actually sit and gossip and talk Losh and horror, and that, of course, is a huge no, no. So, you know, um, for for those that have who go to shul, um, and even now during COVID, whenever you find yourself in the shul, please give it the respect that it deserves, and be a, a, a light unto your friends. Teach your friends that when we are in shul, you know, we need to stand in awe of God because God's presence is there. That's the first thing um, that we learn. The second is, is the um, revelation, so to speak, of Yaakov in him identifying where he has slept. He goes, this is an unusual place, the most unusual place. It cannot be but be the house of God. And he comes to realize that this will be the site of the Holy Temple, of the Beit HaMikdash. Precisely why? Because it's there, Sha'ara Shamayim. It is the, the gates of heaven are here. And this gives us an appreciation of Jerusalem. It gives us an appreciation of the Temple Mount and what is actually happening there. You know, I've said it many times. I'm going to say it again. It's an anomaly. If you sit back and you think about it logically, why is there such a fixation about Jerusalem? Why over millennia has this city been fought and fought and conquered and refought and conquered and fought again and forever? It's not the most beautiful city in the world. There are many more beautifully, naturally beautiful, beautiful cities in the world. It's not in a place that, you know, um, it's not in the middle of the French Riviera, but at the same time, there are, even to this day, okay, and it always has been, Jerusalem has been a headline that makes the news. It is always being dominant in the annals of history. And we cannot just waff it off. And make it an explanation, you know, well, that's that because today there's this and there's that. Or a hundred years ago there was this and there's that. Or thousands of years ago there's this and there's that. Why would marauding armies, Babylonians, of Romans, of Greeks, everybody came to conquer the land of Israel? And more importantly, they knew they had won, that they had conquered in its fullest when they had conquered Jerusalem. And most importantly, that they had taken away or they had conquered the temple, okay, um, the, 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 the temple of God. And the answer is right here. The answer is in the fact 
that Yaakov recognizes that Jerusalem and the mountain upon which he has stood has two aspects to it. That right under, like he was sleeping right under what? The throne of glory. There, there is a spiritual temple that hovers above. And where does it hover? Over this mountain. In fact, we know and we say um, that the third temple, which we are hoping to be rebuilt speedily in our days, it should happen right now, is going to come from heaven because it's going to be an eternal one. And that all the mitzvot, all the good deeds that we are doing, all the Torah we are learning, um, we are building this Beit HaMikdash brick by brick by brick. And there is going to come a point in time where what we perceive with our eyes now as the Temple Mount, that is the mountain upon which our temple will be found. Why? Because that is opposite to the spiritual temple that is under the throne of God. There's another aspect to this whole thing, and that there is the Shar Hashemayim there, that there is a gate through which prayers are accepted. So we have the temple on earth, which should parallel the spiritual temple on high, and it is the gate of heaven through which it's opened many, many times to receive the prayers of all those that that are there. And so we know when somebody worships, when somebody goes and davens in Yerushalayim, it's, it's like as if you are praying directly before the throne of glory. You know, imagine yourself going to Buckingham Palace. You can look at it from the gates outside. And if they open up the gates and you actually walk into the courtyard, you go, wow, I'm Wow, I'm in almost Buckingham Palace. Then they open up the front doors and you walk into the antechambers and all the different chambers. Can you imagine eventually walking into the room in which Queen Elizabeth resides? That's Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem for us. Um, and we know that when one davens in Jerusalem, it's like praying in the, in the room where the, the king is and that the gates are of heaven are open there to accept prayer, and that's why he goes, Ze Sha'ar Hashemayim. Now we can understand, and, and perhaps in context of Yom Yerushalayim yesterday, that Jerusalem is a gift to the Jewish people. It is absolutely an incredible, incredible miracle that today we hold Jerusalem in our hand. It's an incredible miracle that until just before COVID, any person anywhere in the world had the ability to catch a flight, travel to Jerusalem without much trouble, and stand before the throne of glory. And for all those that have been there and have watched the, the thousands and thousands of people that visited the Western Wall, which is the outer extremity of the temple, you can just sit there and, be, and wonder. And I, I, I thank God had this experience many, many times. I've had the merit of being in Jerusalem many times. You look around and you look at the people who come to pray. It's not only a specific sect of Jude or Jewish people. It's every Jew of every, with Ashkenazi or it's Sephardi or it's Haredi or it's Mizrahi or it's Chiloni and it's whatever, whatever labels. And I don't like labeling any Jew. 
But it's not only the Jews. It's the non-Jews too, the truckloads, the busloads of people, of tourists that come and that walk up to that wall and spend a few minutes in communion with God. That's the allure of Jerusalem. That's the sanctity of Jerusalem. We can't see it, but we all can feel it. And that's why there's been so many wars around this little city on top of the mountain. Because the consciousness of man recognizes that spirituality, that connectedness with a higher creator is flowing from this place. And so we need, firstly, to say thank you to Hashem that he has given us back the gift of Yerushalayim until a mere, what, 50-odd years ago, we didn't have Jerusalem in our hand. It was a distant dream. We would finish with the words, Lashana Habab Yerushalayim, never, ever, ever believing that Lashana Habab, the coming year, we would be in Yerushalayim. So we are thankful. Thank you, God, for giving this, us this incredible gift back to the Jewish people after 2,000 years of worrying, uh, of wondering. But at the same time, we must be cognizant of the fact that we haven't got Jerusalem in its entirety, that the third temple needs to be built. We have to await the arrival of Mashiach, and that undoubtedly, if God has given us back Jerusalem, it's not just so that we should just have it as a tourist destination, but it is the beginning of a redemptive process that is returning the Jewish people back to Israel. It's returning the land of Israel back to the Jewish people. And we are seeing and we are living through unbelievable biblical prophecy. I'd love to know your comments on what I've just said. If you agree or you disagree, maybe you have a question 34519 is the SMS line. 0618951019 is our telegram number. So being fearful and being overwhelmed at the enormity of the awesomeness of this place, what does Yaakov do? Number one, he recognizes that it is awesome. And then it says as follows, the Yashkem Yaakov Baboker. Yaakov got up early in the morning. He picks up the stone that he had placed above, uh, um, below his head, that he had put his head on. He makes, he erects in a monument. And he pours uh, oil on top of it. Essentially, what he does is he consecrates the ground. He recognizes uh, through building a monument that, in fact, this place deserves recognition for being something exceedingly, exceedingly holy and special and powerful. Vayikra et Shem HaMakom HaHu Beitel. And he lands up calling this place Beitel. One should know that Beit El, before he called it Beit El, actually had the name Luz. Now, for all of you who have traveled to Israel, 
and I'm sure many of you recognize, recognize the name Beitel. Just, just on the outskirts of Yushalayim, there is a place called Beitel. Um, and it is in recognition of the fact that he, he, that Yaakov recognizes Jerusalem and the spot in which he's standing to be unbelievably holy. Beit El means the house of God. Now, why would the Torah then go and tell us that the city's original name was Luz? Well, it's kind of like an identifying marker. That's one opinion. Because Luz denotes an almond tree. And we were told, we are told that the city had been given the name because of a thick almond tree that covered its in, uh, its entrance. We spoke about it in Parashat Vayera. Um, and one of the things that we learn um, is actually correlated with a custom that we fulfill on Motzei Shabbat, on Saturday night. Because while the city was called Luz because of the almond tree that covered its entrance, we also know that the people that lived in the city of Luz never died there. Why? Because the angel of death had no power in this city. It was such an unbelievably holy city that nobody died simply because the angel of death could not penetrate it. But why did the people not die? Well, we're going to go for a bit of a break. When we get back, I'm going to tell you why. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back. I'm Rebertson Edel Kozulski, and we're talking about the awesomeness of Jerusalem. Okay, and I was telling you that Jerusalem once was a a city. Well, the mountain, Mount Moriah, was a city called Luz that just now got renamed by Yaakov to Beit El, and that was because people did not die there. Well, Luz is not only about an almond tree. It is also a description. It is the name of a vertebra at the back of our neck, right at the top of our neck. The Torah calls that bone, I guess you'd call it C1, okay? Um, it's called the Luz. And we are told in mystic teachings that when a person passes on to the next world and the body is returned to the ground, it could very well be that um, our bodies disintegrate and they um, return to dust. But there is one bone that does not get destroyed, that does not get degraded, and that is the Luz bone. And our mystics teach us that the reason why the Luz bone doesn't lose integrity, remains a bone forever, is because when Mashiach will come, when the Messiah will arrive, there will be, after the building of the temple, the restoration of the Davidic dynasty, um, the ingathering of the exiles, um, all of those good things, the, pen, the, the ultimate, the final curtain of this entire process is that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Believe it or not, Jews believe in reincarnation and they do believe in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. 
How would God be able to resurrect all the all the all the people who were part of this journey of bringing the world to fruition, if their bodies had been eaten up and had uh, degraded into dust? And the answer is through the luz bone, through the luz bone that is indestructible and cannot be uh, doesn't ever degrade itself. God will take the loose bone of each and every individual and from there their body will be re what should I use the word? Remade, recasted. Now one of the things that is a custom is that on Motsa'e Shabbat, when Shabbat goes out, it is a custom for us to eat a meal, a Malava Malcolm meal. Malava Malcolm means to escort the bride, and what we do on Motzei Shabbat, on the, at the end of Shabbat, is we escort the Queen Bride Shabbat out on her way. And as always, we do it through physical service, through eating and drinking, particularly a warm meal. We are told that he who keeps that custom and eats a warm meal on Motzei Shabbat, he feeds his luz bone, and he is guaranteed that um, that nourishes his loose bone and after 120 years when he passes from this world he'll be guaranteed that when there will be triatamatim you will in fact be resurrected therefore this place that he called Beit El which was previously Luz um, that now we actually can understand why the people there didn't die. The Malachamavet couldn't get to them. They were living in an awesome place, okay, unbelievably connected to godliness. And since the name Luz, the name Luz is given, we can by implication understand that they, they were very, very powerful in their spirituality, that they were guaranteed that they would not die. Even Malach um said, I can't come near you. Verse 20 and 21 and 22. We are going to do another three verses. Vayedar Yaakov Neder. Now, what Yaakov does is he vows a vow. He makes a promise. Lamor, and he says, If God is with me, and he guards me in this way, that I am going now, because remember, he's supposed to be going to Laban. And he gives me bread to eat. Ubeged Lilbosh, and he gives me clothes to wear. Veshafti b'shaloma beitavi, and I will return back to my father in peace. Vahaya Hashem li lelokim, and God will be with me in everything I do. Ha'even hazot ashesamti matseva. This stone that I put up as a monument, yihye beit elokim, will be a house of God. And everything that God will give for me, I will set aside a tithe. What is he saying here? He's basically going and said, if God will be with me and he keeps all his promises, so that I will not lack anything in return, okay, I 
And if I return in peace and I'm not, and I'm still innocent of sin and I haven't been influenced by Lavan, and if I'm protected from lush and horror, from looking and seeing and listening to strange things, from embarrassing people, from purposely ignoring the poor, if all of that, then I accept upon myself that the stone which I have erected here becomes the temple of God and I promise to give you a tithe. Now, this is a very, very interesting idea. And um, first of all, we are told that the stone becomes the Evan Hashtia, the foundation stone upon which the holy temple is built. And the stone stood in the holy of holies and upon it, the holy ark was placed. But what's more important is that Yaakov and this is where we get the, the understanding the, the, and, and the mitzvah of giving a tenth away to charity. Yaakov promises that he will separate a tenth of all that he would gain to God, and this would be a tenth of all his produce. There is another opinion that says, in fact, it wasn't a tenth that he promised God, but a fifth, 20%, because it's a double tithe. He goes, Aser I will surely tithe to you. So it says, the Torah therefore goes and says that there is a double tithe. One goes to the Levium and one goes to the poor. Now, let's just go back a little bit and dissect what Yaakov was asking for. Because really in truth, it gives us a perspective about what life is. And what it is that we should be asking God for. You know, King Solomon said, and this is in Proverbs, King Solomon said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon realized that it's best neither to be wealthy or poor. Why? Because both have a negative side to them. If a person becomes too rich, you can easily, easily, peasily, without a batting of an eyelid, become arrogant, become proud. Because then you think the world is yours, you don't have to give a thought for the next world, and you walk around, strutting around like a peacock. And oh boy, do we see that when people who have got money the way that they behave. At the same time, we don't want to live in poverty. For a man who is poor can suffer tremendously. It's very hard to serve God. It also says that you could likely become a flatterer. You flatter others because you're trying to get something out of them. You might lie. You might do a whole lot of stuff that you don't have intention to do it. So King Solomon gives a very, very, um, a very, Balanced, I believe, thing. Give me neither poverty nor riches. We don't want to be in a state of poverty where we don't know where our next sense is coming from and we cannot serve God because we are so consumed about our physical existence. But at the same time, we don't need oodles and doodles of money. And if you go look at what Yaakov said, he was very, very, very precise about what he was asking. He didn't ask for oodles and doodles. He said, give me bread to eat 
and clothes to wear. Let's go for a bit of a break. I'll be back shortly. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back and we've got a couple of minutes still with each other. Um, we are talking about the fact that Yaakov asks God for necessities. And I think that, you know, one can sit back and one can contemplate with oneself what is considered a necessity. You know, you know, always when you, when, when you're arguing with a child, they go, but I need it. You know, needs, uh, do you really need it? Is it something that is going to change your life immeasurably? Or is it just something that you're just going to want and you're going to realize a little while down the line that after you get it, you're not going to need it again because whatever you got didn't fulfill that emptiness within you. God does not want us to live in poverty. God doesn't want us to struggle in life. Um, God wants us to utilize his world as a parent wants the child to be comfortable in their home. But at the same time, one needs to recognize that overindulgence um, is an illness. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't answer to your soul's calling for something much deeper than your physical reality. I kind of like to say that we should pray to God for us to be comfortable. And comfortable also could be open-ended. You know, and one person's comfortableness might be that I need a yacht on the French Riviera. Well, another one might say, I just need a couch in my house. But where you fit in on the continuum of life is when you actually sit back and say, what is it that I need in order to serve God better, for me to be a better human being, one that is empathetic and one that can go out and be of service to humanity? You'll be surprised how little you really do need for that. And to be happy with your lot. We don't need cupboards filled with clothes, cupboards filled with shoes, you know, offices filled with a million uh, gadgets and things. We can have the nice things in life, but they're there because we're going to use them in service of God. It's going to give us peace of mind and allow us to do what we have to do. If we find ourselves in a situation where we're just walking around, you know, having retail therapy and just buying things for the sake of buying things, we've crossed that line. And with that, I wish you a wonderful week ahead. 